Uh, my name is Tofik Haddad. I'm the director of the Council for British Research in the Levant's Jerusalem branch, known as the Kenyan Institute. Uh, today, we are uh, pre-recording, or recording, shall we say, um, an interview with uh, Dr. Mahmoud Memdani. So today's interview is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do with our webinars. Instead, I will go jump straight into questions, uh, see what we can learn from uh, Dr. Memdani in a much more informal fashion about what he has produced today. So uh, before we get into that, this lecture is brought, or this conversation is brought to you by the Council for British Research in the Levant. Uh, it is also co-sponsored by the Educational Bookshop, which is the major uh, bookshop in East Jerusalem. Uh, the Council for British Research in the Levant is an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct, support, and promote humanities and social science research in the Levant we are one of seven different British Academy International Research Institutes, and uh, we have over a hundred year presence in the region, uh, namely with the Jerusalem branch of the Council for British Research in the Levant, but we also have a branch in Amman. Uh, to introduce our speaker today, we have Dr. Mahmoud Memdani, who is an elected corresponding fellow of the British Academy in the year 2017. He currently serves as Chancellor of Kampala International University in Uganda and is the director of the Makareri Institute of Social Research, the Herbert Lehman Professor of Government at the Social School of International and Public Affairs at uh, Columbia, and is also Professor of Anthropology, uh, Political Science and African Studies at Columbia University. He is the author of many different books, perhaps most notable amongst them, Citizen and Subject, When Victims Become Killers, and Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, as well as the book that we will be discussing today, Neither Settler Nor Native, which came out from Harvard University Press just at the end of last year. So uh, with all that said, uh, allow me to sort of jump into some questions for Dr. Mamdani. Uh, I'm going to start off with your, your, your title uh, of your book, Neither Settler Nor Native, subtitled The Making and Unmaking of Permanent Minorities. You seem to be, uh, in your articulation of neither settler nor native, be hinting towards a kind of problematic in this kind of dichotomy, or at least the, the, this, the, the, the conceptions of whether it's settlers or natives or the dichotomy itself. Can you speak to some of the problematics that you feel you are trying to address through this book and, and through this particular title, Dr. Mandela? Thank you very much, uh, Tofik. So I have several claims here. Uh, one is that settler and native are not permanent identities. Settler and native are identities created by a particular form of the state. I distinguish the settler from the immigrant. Uh, immigrants, whether, even, whether they are seeking advantage or equality, they come and settle in existing polities. Settlers seek to establish their own polity subordinate those who have been living there either by expelling them or by 
uh, turning them into uh, unequal people without without the same rights as settlers. So I look forward to a different form of the state. A different form of the state. And here again, there are two options. <clears throat> Either those who came in and became settlers can be expelled or leave, for example, Algeria, or the state can be reformed, the political community can be reformed, so that neither origin nor culture becomes the basis of enfranchisement or sovereignty so that there is neither majority nor minority which precedes the political process. So that all majorities and majority and minorities are the result of a political process. Uh, that's the only way one can have a democratic form of the state. So that's to, to, I mean, to, to, to state uh, very briefly at the outset, uh, that is really my, uh, my very, very brief assertion. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, uh, I guess the next following question that you would have, that, that comes to mind relates to the the broader question, insofar as the contemporary world is organized around the concept of the, the state and the nation state, uh, and obviously there's an important distinction here, um, is it really such a foregone conclusion that nation states uh, must uh, embody uh, this kind of minority majority uh, conception? I mean, after all, in the end of the day, uh, the claim for national self-determination was a right that was recognized by the United Nations. It played a major role in uh, the liberation of large parts of the global south, as you know. And um, uh, is it even a foregone conclusion that they necessarily must act in, uh, in the ways that you describe in the book that ultimately you sort of describe a kind of uh, reproduction of the cycles of violence, part uh, largely because of the the kind of the definitions and the institutions that have been created uh, formerly under the colonial. Um, but isn't there a progressive dimension to uh, uh, national self-determination? Uh, you seem to be, I, I mean, you're taking on a huge uh, uh, element of contemporary post-war and even perhaps pre-post-war uh, political uh, momentum and dynamics, so to speak. And uh, I recognize what you're trying to say insofar as it is uh, the problematics of the post-colonial state, but uh, where do we draw our lines? What's the problem? And uh, is there anything to be retained from the nation state? Um, 
you're right that the problem is not small. The nation state, I, in the introduction to my book, I give a genealogy of the nation state, beginning not from the Treaty of Westphalia in the 17th century, but beginning from 1492, the year when the Iberian state is set up, one country, one people, one religion, and the same year when the conquest of the Americas begins. And the year when minorities, Jews, Muslims are expelled. This state form begins to spread throughout Europe. It's a form of national self-determination. We'll come to the question of what is the nation later. But it spreads throughout Europe and the result is over a century of religious wars. The Treaty of Westphalia is supposed to be an antidote to religious civil wars. And the Treaty of Westphalia has two key components. One is that the national majority, the nation, will tolerate the national minority. And the other is that in return, this state would be recognized as sovereign by all other states in Europe. Now this was theorized by John Locke. Locke in his book on tolerance argued that the majority in England Protestants will tolerate the minority in England Catholics so long as in return the minority does not pay allegiance to any other power outside England, neither to the Pope nor to anybody else. This is the liberal form of the nation state. Liberalism, as is well known, exalts, heralds individual rights. Liberalism is allergic to any form of group right except one. This is the right of self-determination. This is the nation. So, what's wrong with national self-determination? What's wrong is that there is no place in the world where if you 
determine the nation on the basis of culture or descent, you will not have a minority or many minorities. The key question in self-determination is who is the self? The self is determined, it's a cultural self and it's pre-political. It's not a result of a political process. It determines, draws boundaries around the political process. And the self-determination is the determination of the majority. The majority is sovereign. The minority can have rights, but it is not sovereign. Palestinians and Israelis have the right to vote, but they're not sovereign. They don't participate in power. When, after the second intifada, Balad and Azmi Bishara introduced this bill in the Knesset demanding the right of Palestinians as a national minority. That bill would have only partially addressed the Palestinian question. Because once you acknowledge a national minority, you are acknowledging the nation as the majority. In other words, the Jewish nation with a Palestinian minority. And soon after, Azmi Bishara and Balad introduced a second bill in the Knesset. And that second bill said that Israel should acknowledge itself not as a state of the Jewish nation, but as, as a state of all citizens, all, not just majority, all citizens. This bill questioned the notion of both the nation and national minority. I argue in the book that though this did not succeed at the time, in Palestine, in Israel-Palestine, it showed a way forward. And I believe well, we can discuss this later, um, if you prefer. But uh, we have tended to see the phase that came after Balad, the phase identified with BDS and with uh, boycott and divestment. I believe we should not see these two phases as alternatives. 
we should not see the bill, see the bill presented by Balad and Azmi was looking to the inside of the Israeli state. BDS has come up with a strategy which is looking to the outside. How do you isolate the state internationally? My argument is that you have to do both. You have to do both because you have to isolate the Israeli state, not only internationally, but also you have to isolate Zionist power internally. Modern colonialism, especially indirect rule. If you if you take if you take okay if you take modern colonialism, the first phase of modern colonialism, what is known as direct rule, was a civilizing mission. And that civilizing mission, just by the claim that the colonizer was civilized and the colonized was not, it introduced race as central to political identity. But its effect was by doing so, by excluding the majority from political processes, from citizenship, it inadvertently, unintentionally brought the majority together. The result were mid-19th century revolts. It rocked the British Empire from 1857 in India to the 1860s in West Indies to the 1890s Mahdiya in Sudan. These three events rocked the British Empire. There was a deep soul searching. The most important uh, scholar who participated in this soul searching was a British legal anthropologist, Henry Maine. And Henry Maine said that the 1857 uprising was really the result of an epistemic error. That Britain had assumed they could wipe the state clean in India. And then they, would, they could write on this clean slate, tabula rasa, Lockean style. But India had its own history. Britain needs to understand the subjectivity of Indian people. It needs to identify every difference, every cultural difference in India and decide which one is amenable to being politicized so as to reinforce the British camp. 
So began a, a, an amazing project known as indirect rule, which politicized cultural identities, argued that these were ahistorical. The political object was to fragment the colonized, to reverse what direct rule had done, to fragment the colonized, to complement racism with other kinds of politicized identities, depending on the history of different places, religion, tribe, caste. So the, 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 the strategy was to fragment the colonized and to unify the colonizer. Same in Israel, Israel, Palestine. You can see the, the fragmentation of the Palestinian population. Refugees, West Bank, Gaza, inside Israel. But even inside Israel, the Bedouins separated from the Arabs, so on and so forth. Right? The idea is to create multiple minorities. But also, I mean, look at, and the idea is to create, uh, to solidify a majority around the state. But it's not been easy in Israel because if you want to solidify, if you want to solidify this majority is a Jewish majority. You first have to decide who is a Jew. Is a Jew, is Jew a religious identity or is it an ethnic identity? Israeli law has never been able to decide this. It has two definitions of a Jew. One in the law of personal affairs, it's a religious definition determined by halakha, religious law. The other in the legislation on the right of return is a different definition. But that's not all, that's in the state and the legal sphere. But then you come to the social and cultural sphere because over time, it is the Mizrahim who have become the majority of Jews in Israel. But the Israeli state was established not by the Mizrahim, but by the Ashkenazim, Western European Jews speaking the Yiddish language from Eastern Europe. And you, the, 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 the social project of, 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 of the Israeli state was to homogenize the amazing diversity amongst Jews globally during the diaspora, to homogenize them, to flatten that diversity. And that was done by an Ashkenazi diktat over the Mizrahim. 
The Mizrahim were forced to shed, denounce, because the Mizrahim are Arab Jews. They were forced to shed and denounce their Arab culture, language, and to define their identity in exclusively religious terms as Jews, Judaism, exclusively religious terms. But the Mizrahim paid back. They paid back by organizing around a religious Zionism to the right of the Ashkenazim. So the Mizrahim today have two enemies, Palestinians and Ashkenazim. Well, I think there is a, you see, if we want to maintain cultural diversity, and if we want to have a citizenship that makes no distinction between majority and minority, none whatsoever, then we have to think of another form of the state. This is, this is where I wanted to go with it. And can you speak to what the answer then is to the nation state? And what, what you argue in your book, uh, what is the best way to rejoin this uh, dilemma or this problematic, so to speak? Not necessarily in regards to Israel-Palestine, but in the broader context, because you are making those claims uh, for every supposed nation state, from the United States to Germany to also Israel-Palestine. What are you arguing? So let me give you the example of South Africa, because in the book I say we should look to South Africa, not for a model, uh, but for a way forward. Uh, so at the, in 1994, when the apartheid state or some aspects of the apartheid state were being shed. One of the, and, 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 and the first non-apartheid election was going to be held. The key question in that election was, who should have the right to vote? And there were two positions. One position said, only citizens should vote. The other position said, no, all residents should have the right to vote. Now, the difference was huge. Because residents in South Africa included millions of non-citizens, millions of migrants, migrants from across the border, from Malawi, from Mozambique, from Zimbabwe, from Lesotho. And in the mobilization that began in the 1970s, 
and brought the apartheid machine to a halt by the late 80s. In that mobilization, in the first phase, the 70s phase, migrant workers were key. They were the first to be unionized. And pivotal in this unionization effort were radical white students. There were not many. I mean, they were several handfuls, that's all. But they provided the secretaries, the legal advice to the unions that sprang up. They also provided a model to an alternative to white South Africans when the crisis deepened in the late 80s and early 90s. These migrant workers in the hundreds of thousands, they mobilized and they unionized in the hundreds of thousands. They formed the first trade union federation for Satu. The second one followed a decade later, Kosatu. Migrant workers were still there, but not as prominent. Now, from 1994, in the new dispensation, the Zulu Inkata Freedom Party and its leader, Gatsha Buthelezi, got control of the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And from 1994 on, they began to chip away at the rights of migrants, especially to disenfranchise them politically. And also to tell their own constituency that migrants cannot have the same entitlements you do. This is your country, not their country. So I see, I see in this contest, because this notion, this is your country, not their country, even though they work here, the labor here, the, the fruit of the labor is here. And that is the contest between the nation state and the glimpse of another form of political community. Initially summed up in the 1955 Freedom Charter of the African National Congress, which said, South Africa belongs to all those who live in it, not to its citizens, to all those who live in it. Now, I will be the first to admit, I don't have a blueprint. And I don't believe it is the job of an intellectual to manufacture blueprints in his or her study. I think the way forward is charted first and foremost in the struggles of popular movements. And one needs to look at these movements to study them, they provide us with the raw material, raw material, which is necessarily contradictory, necessarily tension-ridden, 
And it's the job of the intellectual to systematize what social movements constantly, continually, time and again, bring to the fore through a process of trial and error. So I'm not, uh, I'm not a liberal theorist. I mean, I don't, I don't describe to, to, to the notion of liberal political theory that a theorist should come up with an answer to the question, a good society. I, I think that's, that's giving too much credit and power. To, to, to the intellectual. You credit, uh, my final question, uh, thank you for that answer. You credit the power of social movements to be able to navigate these political tensions. And you also argue that there is this need to, of course, um, you know, uh, sort of delink or decouple the, the nation and the state and sort of, uh, uh, you, seek to build a new political community around this concept with South Africa providing not a template, but uh, a lot of uh, fertile ground to work with. Uh, with that said, uh, you've limited it to uh, sort of an intellectual process as well as a social movement process. But I'd like to ask you to speak just a little bit about where the material comes in. The material, as in the, the, the economic and uh, accumulation and production, because obviously ideas do not just emerge out of thin air, and they, people's ideas will not simply shift one way or another simply because they seem more convincing, so to speak. Uh, in the South African model, at the end of the day, the white South African minority was a minority that relied upon the uh, exploitation of the black and colored uh, labor force and uh, the pariah status that uh, the, the, the movement in South Africa was able to sort of impose upon white South Africa ended up creating those contradictions that, uh, that led some white intelligentsia to break away. Uh, but so, so there clearly are material factors there that are also part of the question. I recognize that it's not your role to give a full political program. And, uh, but uh, do you wanna say anything about uh, the material dimension to, to what you're speaking about? Sure. I mean, look, you're obviously right. Uh, we cannot just be thinking at the political level. We have to think of the marketplace and we have to think of culture, which, through which we make meaning. I mean, I come from a, from a Marxist background. I, I was a member of the, uh, the first post-independence generation of African intellectuals. And we believed that with independence, if there would be violence, 
it would be along class lines. It would be shaped by wealth and poverty. The rich facing the poor. The poor facing the rich. The violence would either be revolutionary or counter-revolutionary. Then came the Rwandan genocide, 1994. The rich were not facing, the rich and the poor were not facing one another. The poor were facing poor and the rich were facing rich. And if you wanted to understand the division, It was ethnic. All kinds of right-wing scholars came out of the woodworks and said, see, this is what Africa is about. Africa is tribal. All conflicts in Africa are tribal. The tribes don't know how to live with one another. Peace has to be imposed from the outside. So I, it is in this environment that I wrote my book, When Victims Become Killers. It's a book on the Rwandan genocide, but it's a book mainly on the historical, historical background, what led to it. And I realized that I had, that my Marxism was incomplete. My understanding of the marketplace creating tensions was incomplete. That actually I had to concede that the state is not just a reflection of tensions in the marketplace, but the state has its own autonomy, not just autonomy because that word was used endlessly but has its own creative movement. And the state actually does and can set in place a momentum counter to that generated by the marketplace. In South Africa, the marketplace, primitive accumulation, dispossession of the peasantry, pushed landless peasants into the urban areas in the vocabulary of the state, Africans into the urban areas. 1940, mine workers strike. The writing was on the wall. The South African state countered with apartheid, reorganizing African society along cultural lines, ethnic lines, giving ethnic self-determination, autonomy to each of the Bantustans, homelands, pushing the excess population out of towns into the rural areas. Apartheid was first and foremost a political project designed to stabilize apartheid society. 
No, you're right. That that political form, apartheid. See, Marxist scholars understood apartheid is just is just a form of extracting cheap labor by paying less to black workers than to white workers. Sure it was that, but that was not the main thing about apartheid. Apartheid fragmented the oppressed population. It reversed the trend to majority making across cultural lines, across ethnic lines. Apartheid was a political project, first and foremost. Now, again, you're right that with 1994, the huge inequalities in South Africa have not been addressed. When I was at the University of Cape Town, 1996 to 1999, I read the UN Human Development Index and the report that went with it, which said that if white South Africa was a separate country, it would be 14th in the world next to Spain. And if black South Africa were a separate country, it would be 114th in the world next to Congo. So of course you're right. The point is not that this is not an important question. It's a very important question. But we need something more than just the realization that extreme inequality exists. We need to have a strategy to bring together a movement which will be equal to addressing this question. And I think that movement will not be possible unless the political is reformed first, unless racial differences are depoliticized, unless the momentum that began in the 1970s with a handful of radical white students and grew, grew in the 1980s in the face of the township revolt. So that not only did the apartheid state realize that this revolt could seep into the Bantustans, but also even scarier for them, that the, the white apartheid intelligentsia was beginning to from the apartheid project and look for an alternative project. So what I'm saying is maybe two alternatives. One is civil war and the other is social justice. The way forward in terms of attaining social justice is to address the questions that would lead to civil war, which is politicized race, politicized culture. Already you have what is called xenophobic 
violence in South Africa. It's curious that xenophobic violence in South Africa does not, address, does not target the racial stranger, it targets the tribal stranger. Because whereas race, you have the beginning of depoliticizing race, tribe is still understood to be a natural phenomenon. Customary law organized ethnically, chiefs organized ethnically, homelands organized ethnically, have survived 1994. But if you don't want a movement for social equality to spark a civil war between different Bantustans and urban areas, we have to first depoliticize culture and strengthen a new polity. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, your thoughts and your time and this fascinating discussion that we've been able to have. Uh, we've been discussing today, Neither Settler Nor Native, The Making and Unmaking of Permanent Minorities by Dr. Mahmoud Mamdani, which came out from Harvard University Press at the end of last year. You've been listening to a conversation between Tofik Haddad and Dr. Mahmoud Mamdani, brought to you by the Council for British Research in the Levant in Jerusalem as well as the Educational Bookshop. Check us out online, www.cbrl.ac.uk to sign up for uh, forthcoming webinars and book discussions like this one, as well as our, acti our activities. Take care and have a lovely day. All the best. Thank you so much, Tofik. Bless. And thank you to all those who, I hope, listen to this conversation. Inshallah.